This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. I have a desire to not just have the power and the tools of the kingdom of heaven, but to wield them. You guys ever had that thought that we have so much given to us, but we oftentimes don't allow it to be leveraged to the fullest extent in our life? So I, I've been, we went on a trip and we, uh, someone stayed at our house and so we had, you know, the sheets change out, you know, where you have this set of sheets and one of our, our top sheets got lost in the, in the mix-up of all of that. And so I've been bringing it up to Leslie the last, uh, like, two weeks. It's like, hey, do you know where our top sheet is? You know, because it's like there's something about having a top sheet that is just really nice in life, especially during the summer. And so we kept getting distracted. It's like, oh, I think it's in here, or it may be in here, and then we'd never follow through on it. So every night I'd be in bed going, oh, we don't have a top sheet again. So yesterday was a huge breakthrough. We got the top sheet, and I put it on. It was a huge sort of almost like ceremony uh, because I, my top sheet is back. And this morning when I got up and we were, I was looking at making the bed, I realized that I'd never even gotten under the top sheet. It was pulled up all the way to the top. <laughs> And in a strange way, that's the way some of us live our Christian life, where we crave something, and then we receive it from God. We get the revelation of it, and then we fail to use it uh, the way God intended us to use it. So this is a top sheet message. This is one of those things that many of you crave in your life. I am going to introduce you to it, and the key is that we activate it. We do not want to just be hearers, we want to be doers. And so there's a tension in us as modern Christians where we are used to hearing and not doing. And it's a bad habit. We need to be hearing and then doing. And so let's make sure that we have that down as we move forward. So this message is called The Strategist, Understanding God's Amazing Military Mind. I have been spending a lot of time studying war, which is sort of an odd thing to spend time doing. But last year, if any of you followed uh, the Daily Thunder, uh, I had a 93-episode series on World War II, spiritual lessons from World War II. And World War II is just a big thing. So 93, I even had people upset with me that I stopped short of 100. You know, it's like, come on, Eric. And I was sort of upset too because I really wanted to go, but we were hitting into Christmas season. But I'm just about to start this next week a series on Alfred uh, the Great. And so I'm dealing with war from so many different angles. And I'm also going through the, the scriptures and I've, you know, I just went through uh, Judges and then, well, you know, even the conquering of Canaan and all that is all war. But then I went through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And so I am just loaded with war pictures in my mind. And there is something that I am, I'm, I'm chewing on and I'm trying to grip. And it's, it's very significant and I don't know that I'm ready to teach on it. But it's, it's there, and it's like low-hanging fruit, and I'm seeing it. And you know, there was a statement that Jackie Pullinger, who used to work in the walled city of Hong Kong, uh, with some of the most destitute people on earth. I mean, the walled city was so bad that even the police wouldn't go there. 
And she came back to America to speak, and she made a, a statement that Leslie and I, we just sort of stared at each other like, okay, how does that work? And, but we agreed with it, and that is there's two systems uh, that you can live in as a Christian. You can attempt, and she was talking about finances. She says, if you live according to the system of like, you have to do everything perfect, you have to invest all your money perfectly because this is what you're supposed to do. This is perfect righteousness with your finances. Then you have to do it perfectly. God's gonna say, okay, you wanna do it your way? You wanna do it in your power? You have to do it perfectly. And you're then governed by the laws of finance. However, if that same person were to say, God, I don't have the capacity to do this supernatural work on my own, and so I'm going to entrust everything, all my resource, all my need to you, and I want you to supernaturally do it. And doesn't it sound like that person's cheating? You know, it's just like, and, and, but she comes back to the United States and says, that's what I've done, and I've watched God supernaturally care for over 100 people that she's responsible for every day in one of the most destitute places on earth. So Leslie and I are like, huh, I'm interested. I want to know more about that, even though I'm a little scared to know more about that. What does that mean? And so here's what I've seen in the tapestry of Scripture. God is supernaturally leading this people, this nation. And you can't argue that. When you, they, they're lifted out of Egypt supernaturally. It wasn't like the slaves had a revolt. No. God is going to bring plagues, and then ultimately he is going to cause Pharaoh to say, get out of here. And then they're going to take the gold with them, like all the precious uh, jewels with them, and they're going to plunder the Egyptians. I mean, that's extraordinary. Who did it? God. He's going to part a Red Sea and save them through that Red Sea and destroy the Egyptians, the most powerful military force in the world, without the Israelites lifting a finger. Okay, and then you look at every battle. Every time Moses' arms go up uh, when the battle against the Amalekites, they're winning. Every time they go down, well, who's causing the victory then? It's, it's God. This is a supernatural way. Didn't even look at the entrance to the land of Canaan, marching around Jericho. Okay, that is not a typical military strategy. It's like, all right, we're going to march around Jericho seven, uh, seven straight days. On the seventh day, we're going to do it seven times, then blow it a horn, and the walls are going to fall. Okay, now, you're not going to see that in any military strategy books. Okay, if you're going to be training as a general at West Point, you're not going to learn that tactic because it is not of this world. Israel is going to see the nations around them and every nation is so cool compared to them. They have cool buildings, they have cool clothing, they have cool makeup, they have a cool king. And Israel is going to compromise their system of being governed by God to say we want to be governed like all these other nations are governed. And as a result, once they switch into that mode, now they have to have battle strategy that matches what a king can do as opposed to what God can do when he lifts his finger and wipes out 185,000 overnight. It's like, if you think about it, it's like the God battle strategy with God as the king and God as a general is a lot better than having, even, I mean, David's a wonderful general, but it's still, it's like human. And you have to fight human to human as opposed to, and that's why you see David even numbering his armies. He's starting to think like the world is thinking as opposed to all you need is one soldier willing to fight and they can defeat an entire army. I mean, welcome to the story of Gideon. Welcome to the story of uh, Esther. I mean, this is like God's tactic. And so what we see, if I was to say the, the big tapestry of Scripture, is God finally ending that reign of earthly kings and saying, guys, have you seen it yet? Do you realize that this is insufficient? 
you need a heavenly king. You need a heavenly general again. And we as Christians are being brought back into that supernatural way of living. That way of living that doesn't necessarily fit the West Point handbook. It doesn't make any sense to the world around us. But it is very effective. And it actually works, but it works off of a different system. It's not self-effort or man-effort. It's God-ability. It's faith. We trust our God to do it. And as a result, the world is changed. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, since you've seen that scripture, maybe your entire life, it doesn't dance on the page to you. One of the most important things with scripture is do not ever take it for granted. That one scripture can come back to you a thousand, ten thousand, maybe a hundred thousand times afresh. I remember one time I was praying, it was a couple years ago. It was in my early morning prayer time. I was walking around our neighborhood just praying, muttering to myself, as I do. And this scripture suddenly landed upon my soul, and I saw it. I was like, whoa, whoa, that is my secret. I am to be strong in something, but that isn't my own strength, my own wisdom, my own ability to communicate, my own financial portfolio. I'm supposed to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. There we go, right there, military strategy. So the strategist, capital S, strategist, God Almighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the general of generals, has outlined a battle strategy for us. And it's right there on your screen. And so uh, I can't force you to see it and to have one of those moments where you're like, ah, I got it. I can't do that. That's one of the frustrating things about being a man is I can't be God, right? I can't do God things, but God can do that in you. My job is to relay the profundity of God's word, the truth of God's word, and let the Holy Spirit does, do what he does. But I wish I could force it in, you know, at times. It's like, oh, I wish I could awaken the lost around me, but I, I, that's not my job. The, or the word strategy is the mind, plans, and purposes of the military general. So that's our definition for today. The word strategy actually is a very mm, biblical word, if I could say it that way, and you're, you're going to see why. It comes out of uh, the Bible. So I don't know how many of you guys know the Kendricks, Stephen and Alex Kendrick, uh, and so they produce uh, movies. And so Hudson and I were able to get together with Stephen. This is quite a few years ago. I mean, Hudson, I want to say 10 years old at the time. And I remember it was just a really fun evening in downtown Denver where we were exchanging stories of faith. So I would share a story of God's supernatural working in our ministry. He would share a, a supernatural story. So I would share with his son. He would share with Hudson. It was a really powerful time. And then he, was, he loves to talk about prayer. And at the time, War Room, I think had just come out. So whenever that was, that would have been when, when we met. And there was something that he said that has always stuck with me, and, and, and I don't even know that I could give the exact quote, which is you know, what I'm known for. I'm known for paraphrasing everything that I hear. I can never get anything exactly right, but I could paraphrase it really well. Very good at that. And it was something like this. Eric, do you have a strategy for how you approach your praying? And, you know, my, my first thought is, of course. 
And then if he were to ask me, what is your strategy? He's like, I'm not exactly sure how to answer that, but I'm sure I have a strategy. I mean, just beat up the devil, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> and so he started going into greater detail of saying, you know, see, when we go to a, a film and say we're, we're going to do it in this city, we're going to pray ahead of time that God will show us exactly where to uh, set up shop, where, where we're going to film it, where our locations are going to be. We're going to pray about every single detail. We're going to pray for weather. We're going to pray for the financial undergirding. We're going to pray for the exact actors and all of the, uh, the background actors. Every single detail is going to be prayed for. Time and time and time again, because we feel that if this isn't built by God, we're laboring in vain. Well, I mean, I agree with everything he just said. However, the granular detail is what startled me. Because a lot of times we'll be like, God bless this movie production. It's like, and we're praying every day, God bless this movie production. So we're praying, but we're, it's not a strategic praying, where we're literally hitting on very specific things. Uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it's Spurgeon that talks about there's two forms of praying. One is you can take sort of a gun and go and shoot a whole bunch of bullets in the air and hope that you hit someone. And the other one is to line your sights and take it out. And he said, that's what prayer is supposed to be, where we're very specific in our praying. We know exactly what we're doing. We know what God wants to accomplish, and we're going after it. So I, I don't know if this is an exact quote from the movie War Room, but it just sounds like it, doesn't it? Uh, Honey, you need a prayer strategy. And that's, that's sort of me talking to you guys this morning with the little southern drawl, a little feminine, right? Sort of awkward. <laughs> it's sort of like this. Coach, you need a game plan. It's like this one coach is like, hey, guys, just go out there and play football. And that's the way many of us take our Christian life. You ever notice that? It's just like, go out there and live as Christians. It's like, all right, all right. What, what exactly does that mean? Practically, what does that mean? What does that mean right now? What does that mean when I'm driving down the road? What does that mean when I uh, pull up to Starbucks? What does that mean when I'm getting gas? What does it mean to live for Christ? What does it mean? Is there actually a strategic approach to your life, to your day, to the way you're thinking, living, acting, relating? Coach, you need a game plan. The basics about spiritual war. So let's just go through what the Bible teaches us about this battle that we're in. Because it's not, we're not in a football game. We are in a military engagement. It's called a battle, but in the bigger picture, it's called a war. We are engaged in this, and many of us act like we're not. And as a result, if you do not recognize that you are in a military campaign, you don't recognize that you need a strategy for it. If, if you study war history, you recognize this is like critical that you have thought through, you understand not just your opponent, but you understand your strengths, you understand your resource, you understand where your ground is and you understand what ground you're supposed to take, what your ground you're not supposed to lose. So let's go through what the Bible says. First Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Underneath these, you're going to see these little, uh, almost like parenthetical, bold statements that are going to be like our uh, short list of key summary points in the Bible of what, spiritual, what the Bible says about spiritual warfare. Here it is. This is going to sound very basic, but this is what I want us to understand. You have an enemy, 
and this enemy is actively seeking to destroy you. Isn't it funny? All of us know that, but when it's bold and on the screen, it seems, you know, it's rather sharp and you can't miss it. There it is. It's a fact. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. So what can we take from that? You are in a very real war, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. So there was a well-known Christian author a bit ago, and he came out and he was like, I'm sick and tired of Christians using the war metaphor. Okay, a metaphor is when you liken something to something else. The metaphor isn't the reality. It's just sort of a picture of the reality. However, the problem with this guy's thought processes is it's not a metaphor. This is not like, oh, and it's like war. It is a war. And it's not us poetically saying something about a battle and a war. It is that we are engaged in a war. And if you don't realize that, I guarantee you, you're losing in it. However, when you're aware of that, and you're aware of the weapons that you have been given as the saints of God, you do not fear the war, you smirk at the war. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and, es and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. So here's a summary point. In and of yourself, you are weaker than this enemy. You desperately need one stronger to come to your aid. That's actually very, very important for you to recognize. In other words, you have an enemy, you're in a war, but this enemy is stronger than you. I know it sounds like bad news at first, doesn't it? And it is. It's bad news if you don't have one stronger. But of course, the good news is, and by the way, have you met the one that's stronger, that wants to come in and rescue you? Of course, that's, that's good news, right? And so it's important to recognize that you're weaker than this enemy. Because if you think you're an equal match with this enemy, and it's just cunning and wit and wisdom that's going to get you through it, you're leaning on the wrong thing. You're not being strong in the Lord and the power of his might. You're being in the, uh, strong in you, your own wit and wisdom and your own strategy and your own brilliance and not in the power of his might. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of, his, of the son of his love. So what do we learn from that? What is the summary? The stronger has come. In Christ, you are delivered from the clutches of this ancient enemy. Luke 10, 19, behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So what do we learn from that? In Christ, you have power over this enemy. So though in your own skin, which is called in scripture being in Adam, it's the old condition. It's the first condition of your life. It's in Adam. In Adam, you are weaker than this enemy. The enemy has the upper hand. The enemy will defeat you. And hasn't that been proven to us many times over? However, 
in a second condition, when you repent of that and you believe in Christ, you enter into a new condition. It's called being in Christ. And in Christ, you actually have power over this enemy. So though this enemy is stronger than you, you apart from Christ, he's stronger. But you in Christ, he has nothing on you. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? By the way, I really like that scripture. In Christ, you need not fear this enemy. That's the message of the scriptures too. Do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. And then you're like, didn't you say he's more powerful than me? I mean, if there was ever a good reason to fear, that's a pretty good one. Yeah, but do you know what it also says? It says that if God be for you, who can stand against you? If you are in Christ, you have armor. You have weaponry that is greater than that enemy. So it's the way I've likened it a lot of times is you're a sheep against a wolf pack. So if you're a betting person and you see a wolf pack out there and you see you as a sheep and all of us are like, who are you going to think is going to win this one? So all of us are going to bet on the wolf pack unless some of you are going to be all spiritual about it going, but I think God says that the sheep will overcome. And yes, but in the natural sense, there's no way that the sheep can beat the wolf pack. However, in strides the shepherd. And this is one tough shepherd. He has a rod, a shepherd's rod of iron. And he, I mean, the the wolves see him and they're like, (gasps) they turn white. Can a wolf turn white? I think so. (laughs) And so what God, what the shepherd says to the, the lamb is says, if you stay in the shadow of your shepherd, Those wolves cannot touch you. But they're wolves, God. They're wolves. But I am greater than the wolves. And so you tell those wolves to get out of here. That's what he says to us. You tell those wolves to get out of here in the name of your shepherd. And so we're like, (laughs) and you know how humiliating that must be for a wolf to have to leave town because of a sheep told them to get out of town? That is God's sense of humor right there. 1 Corinthians 10.3, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. So, and in Christ, you have been given God-given weapons to utterly humiliate this enemy. So here's some words from the Greek. Uh, the Bible is, in the New Testament, is going to be written in Koine Greek, and it seems to really like this idea of stratia. So this is a noun. Uh, this means army. And this is the host of armed angels, band of ready soldiers, the fellowship organized and rallied for battle, the group strategically united and prepared to go to war and win. This is a good picture of the church of Jesus Christ right here, but it's also a picture of the angelic host. They are an army. It's interesting, and this is just one of those mathematical concepts here, and some of you may have heard me mention this in the past, but mathematically, we look out there and most of us feel like there's demons and there's bad dudes everywhere and God's just like this one guy, he's way off in the distance and he's like, God, we really need more power here. And that's a misconception that is bred by the enemy himself. See, what does the enemy not want you to know? First of all, the enemy and God are not equals. It's not like Satan is an equal power, it's like yin-yang type of a thing. No, God is God and Satan is a created being. He's not all-knowing. He's not omnipresent. He's not, uh, he doesn't have the stuff. He's not almighty like God is. Okay, so that's one pretty important contrast right there to make. But then think about the angelic host. Okay, so the demons are merely fallen angels, right? 
And so what did, we must have started with some kind of finite number. In other words, it was a determinable number. Why? Because it divided. And Satan is going to take one-third with him. So how many more angels are there than demons? There's double. God has double the angels, now get this, and he's God. I mean, he could just be God and just with a flick of his finger knock all the demons out. You know, it's just like he doesn't need anything else. He's God. And so what you begin to recognize is, wow, I don't think the devil's been telling me about that. That's right. The devil's a yammerer. He's a talker. And he wants to discourage you. He doesn't want you to know the truth. So war comes from the word stratea, the warfare, the name for the overall conflict between kingdoms, the results of what happens when two adversarial parties engage in military exercise against one another. The general is a strategos. So for those of you that grew up playing stratego, you're like, aha, now I know where that came from. That's the military general, the lord of battles. The soldier is a stratiotis, the fighting man ready to receive orders from the strategos. Isn't that interesting? It's like the army man. It's like the, the man who is a miniature of his general. He has the will of his general baked inside of him. He is strategotes instead of a strategos. We have a strategos. It sounds uh, Hispanic as I'm saying. some kind of Mexican statement. Uh, strategos. <laughs> and we are strategotes. We are the soldiers, the fighting men and women that are ready to receive orders from higher above. We are not the ones trying to wage the war. We are the ones waging his war. He's the one with the mind. He has given us his mind in and through his word. The text, the man, the action. He has laid it out for us. This is what I want to accomplish in this world. We're like, sir, yes, sir. The engagement is called the stratuyo or the stratumai. The real-life action of the soldiers, the real-life implementation of the military strategy, the real-life use of the weapons, the real-life wielding of the sword against the enemy. You could have all the weapons. You could have all the knowledge of the power of your position, but if you don't act in war, I mean, you could have the best military position. You could have millions of troops, but not use them. You know, there's a lot of illustrations in military history where generals are afraid to spend their resource so they don't ever move into battle. And it is actually a travesty to think that a more powerful party is actually going to lose because they were afraid to act. In, uh, in, in various wars, like World War I, there was a, a unique challenge that the British had where they had these old Navy ships and they didn't want to lose them because they fell in love with them. If you'd been a guy in peacetime and for 30 years had this one ship and you've been over this one ship and then suddenly it's just like, hey, let's go and spend it. Well, that's my ship. Yeah, but what's the ship for? The ship is meant to be spent. That's the whole goal of it. But this ship took years to build. We've been polishing it daily. You know, those guys on the ship, they're polishing the brass and they're, you know, cleaning the decks or swabbing the decks. I need to use a good ship term. And if you've been doing that for all these years, then it's like, I don't want to spend it. You were built to be spent. What did, what did Jesus come for? He didn't come to just sort of live his own life and be comfortable. It's like, hey, I'm a human. I get to do my thing. I finally get the opportunity to be a human. He came as a soldier, as a stratiotes, under a strategos, to do the strategos' will, which was to be spent 
so that others could live. Now we are as Christ in this. We are being commissioned as the Father sent me, so I send you, he says to us. He says, I'm going to turn you over to the Stratigos. You follow him. And we have been given power in which to do it. So a spirit war is what we are engaged in. 2 Corinthians 10.3, this is Paul the Apostle, we do not stratuyo after the flesh. So this is the military engagement. We do not do our real life implementation of military strategy, fighting and advancement against Satan by the strength of our own ability, willpower, intelligence, brainstorming, and gumption. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. You've seen this before, but we'll read it again. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. The spiritual vocabulary of war. There's a lot of it in scripture. So 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6 gives us a lot, all in one place. It's like a treasure trove for war vocabulary in scripture. This is Paul the Apostle speaking. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. In other words, though we are in physical bodies, we do not actually use these physical bodies as our chief weapon of war. We actually function with spiritual tools. I know it sounds strange. Even though we're in human bodies, we are going to war with spiritual tools. Well, how does that work? And that's part of what the whole Christian life is learning. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not earthly. They're not derived from my ability, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Let's understand our most elementary weapon in our warfare. So if we're going to talk about what we have, so our weapons are not earthly, they're not human, what do we have? We have something that is gifted to us from outside of us. The chief representation of that would be what we could call the Word of God. Now, the Word of God, as you've already heard me enunciate, the Word of God comes in five different forms. That's the way we'll express it here at Ellerslie. The Word of God in text, the Scripture, the Word of God in person, Jesus, the Word of God in action, the cross. When, as a believer, you wrap those first three fingers together and you have the essence of what we believe. We believe the text of Scripture revealed Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of Scripture, as the man of Scripture, as that Messiah of Scripture, and that what he did on that cross is the fullest expression of what he came to do and what we need in order to be saved. And so we believe in the Word of God. And so if you say, I believe the Word of God, that could mean you believe the text and it would be good. I believe the man, Jesus, to be my savior, that would be good, and I believe what he did on that cross is everything to me. And so that's the basis of it. Then the other two fingers, the word of God in us, which is the result of this. Now the Holy Spirit is actually going to move in and make us a living epistle. So this world can now read us as a letter from God. And then the word of God through us. It's not just supposed to hang out here, it's supposed to go at large in this world. We are supposed to carry it. We're supposed to go into all the world and deliver it. And so that's, the, that's what we call the five fingers. So let's understand our most elementary weapon in our warfare, the word of God. 
Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, now I cut out what he said so we could trim this down. I could just get to my point, which is, but he, Jesus, answered and said, it is written. Then the devil said to him, Jesus said to him, it is written. Again, the devil said to him, then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written. That's a powerful weapon. In other words, this isn't a human battle. Jesus is literally demonstrating for us how we fight our battles. Then the devil left him. So the word of God is a weapon. It is written is the scripture. It is fulfilled is Jesus Christ. It is finished. That's the cross and the shed blood. There's your weaponry right there. I mean, you need to know what is written, and you need to know that what is written is fulfilled in Jesus. And you need to know that what was finished, what was needed to be accomplished for us to be able to function down here the way God has commissioned us is finished. It is done. It is ready. There's a lot more work to be done, but everything that is needed for us to fulfill our campaign as the church has been supplied. Yeah. The word of God, we're going to call it the strategy of God. So we have this message is called the strategist. So... What is God's strategy? It's the word of God. That's literally his battle plan. It's like all there. If you, if you study World War II, you get sort of mad at the allied leaders, especially in the beginning, like the 1939 period, you're just like disgusted with the allied leaders because they don't believe that Hitler has any malintent. You know, he just wants to claim back some of the territory for Germany that was taken from them in the Versailles Treaty. It's just reasonable. You know, hey, they were a, you know, an oppressed people. Let them have some territory. It's all right. And then Winston Churchill's like, have you read his book that he wrote in prison? It's called Mein Kampf. Just read it. And it outlines his entire master plan. And everyone's like, oh, no, we don't need to read it. We, we think he's a good guy. Well, this is sort of the flip side of that. You might want to read God's master plan. God has mapped out his entire strategy and where we fit in it. So if we're going to be Good strategiotes, if we're going to be good soldiers in this battle, I say we should get familiar with our general. If we want to get familiar with our general, we need to know the strategy of God, the word of God, the mind, plans, and purposes of the military general of generals. The bluster of the enemy. So the enemy's going to make a lot of noise. I, I'm guessing, you see, I've never lived in your body and lived out your life, but I've lived enough in my body and been around enough people and talked with them to know that it's pretty similar. What's going on inside of your life is, is gone, inside of, uh, gone on inside of mine. And that is, there is a talker out there. And he seems to never quit, does he? I mean, you defeat him one day and he just comes back the next day as if he you know, didn't, wasn't missing a beat. He is a talker. And so I'm going to call it the bluster of the he wants to keep you off your guard. He wants to take you off of your game. I've thought about it. Leslie and I have discussed it many times. As a staff, we've talked about it. Why is the devil even do doing this? We know it's him, and we know we have authority, and he's just going to be belted in the nose and get a bloody nose from messing with us. Why is he doing this? And yet part of it is distraction. There is value to distraction even. There's value to taking us off our game subtly and cause us to turn our gaze over here even for a moment as someone is walking by that needs Christ and we're having to tend to a fire over here. 
You see, he is very tactical and very strategic in what he is doing. We need to be equally so. We need to recognize that we are engaged in a battle and this enemy is not relenting. And so as a result, let's take it to him. Let's be on the offensive instead of the defense. You ever thought about that? Wouldn't that be a nice turn of uh, occasion? Oh, wait a minute. I wanted to read this line to you. Do you know his weak points? He's got them. Starting with the fact that he is defeated. That's a pretty big weak point, by the way, guys. It's like the devil's like, don't tell him that. He's defeated. He actually has no authoritative power over you as a child of God. That is one of the great blessings of being in Christ, is the devil no longer has hold. He no longer has say. He no longer has authority, legal power over you to control you. Like, no, water off a duck's back. You cannot tell me what to do anymore. You cannot control me via the flesh side of my life. I am now controlled by something greater known as the Holy Spirit. Arming every Christian with the weapons, we shouldn't be the ones being pushed around. Imagine if you caught the vision that you actually have the authority in your position in Christ to push the powers of darkness around. Instead of being pushed around by the enemy, could you imagine if you awakened to that and were like, wait a minute, are you saying? I'm saying. In other words, we are not the ones that should be shoved. We are the ones that shove. We are the ones that don't just, I mean, here's, here's what's happening to the church in North America. We keep backtracking and we give a little more territory to try and appease. It's like, well, well if we go back like this, maybe everyone will be at peace. And what do they do? They keep taking more territory. You know that ancient church, what it did is it took territory. It didn't give up territory. It actually took territory. Why? Because this belongs to Jesus. These souls were purchased. Let's go after them. It's a completely different mindset, but it's a military mindset. 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. To understand weaponry, you, first, you need to first understand position. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, he, the Father, seated him, Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in, the age, in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So if I said, what is Jesus's position? I don't think most of you would struggle with it. I mean, it's pretty clear right there. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places, and all things are beneath his feet. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty high and lofty position. It is. However, if I were to ask you what your position is, it gets a little more muddled. It's like, ah, I don't know. I mean, I'm down here in a chair in Windsor, Colorado, in a chapel building. That's my position. And you see, what you're doing is you're still reasoning after a natural man. You're not reasoning after a spiritual man. You cannot fight your battles here. You must fight your battles in a different way. That's why Paul is going to say, you fight them in Christ. You need to be strong in the Lord. So you recognize your position is actually his position. You are in Christ. And that's uh, what we're going to see unfold here. His position is your position, and all things are under his feet. 
So Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now you may not feel like you're sitting in heavenly places right now. And yet spiritually, if you have transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of that dear son, you are no longer in Adam. You are actually in Christ. And your spirit man is where he is. And so he is at the right hand of the Father, and all things are beneath his feet. Where are you? You are, well, what does it say? And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if you've ever heard sermons where I ask the question to an audience, and I'm like, what's your position? And they'll yell back, in Christ. And then other people are listening, going, what was that? What did they say? And that's exactly what we're rallying around. We need to know our position. When you know your position, you're no longer bullied by the enemy. The enemy is terrified of the Christian who would know their position in Christ. Praying in the name of Jesus. So when you pray, where do you pray from? Down here in your human uh, zone, in your chair? Or do you pray in a heavenly zone? In Christ, where's Christ? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's in heavenly places, all things beneath his feet. And you're in him when you pray to the Father. And how do you pray? You pray in the name of Jesus. You're praying in Christ is what that means, just to try and help you out there. Why do you have authority when you pray? Not because you're trying to get your prayer to somehow bust through the roof here and make it all the way to heaven. It's because God has brought you near because of the shed blood of his Son, Because of your faith in him, you have been brought near, clothed in his righteousness, allowed to enter into the throne room of grace where you can make your petitions known in the name of Jesus. Acts 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. I love this line. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Weapons of warfare that are mighty. What is Paul wielding? He's not coming up and bopping the girl in the nose with his natural man's strength. It's not a cunning. What it is, is he is functioning in a spiritual war, in a position, in the name of Jesus. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So, I like, again, I can't force you to see that scripture and to have it come off the page to you. However, that's what I want you to see. I want you to recognize that this is the battle strategy that wins. If you want to get inside the mind of your general, this is what he's saying to you. I want you to be strong, but I want to teach you where that strength needs to come from. It's not be strong in your own pocket strength, but God, I have a lot of money in the bank. I can be strong for you. Aren't you glad you chose me? God, I have nothing in the bank. In fact, I feel rather weak and flimsy in this life. Why would you want me? He goes, oh, now I got someone I can use. Because that person isn't going to look to their own strength, their own mind, their own resource. They're going to recognize that they're wholly dependent upon God Almighty to do it. And he says, now that's the vehicle 
That's the instrument I can use. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. What do we have authority to do? Let's look at what scripture says. Matthew 16, 19, and then 18, 18. And I will give, you un- give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, some of you have been around this scripture, and you've seen some weird stuff happen, okay? I'm just giving you a scripture. I'm saying this is actually authority stuff, okay? I'm not trying to propose weirdness. I'm proposing Christianity, James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Again, this is a military concept. This is an action of soul that we're being uh, commissioned to do by our, uh, our strategos. And he's saying, no, submit to me and resist. And when you resist, the devil flees. The word of God is wielded in two key ways. Number one, declaring the facts. Wielding that which it says in verbal pronouncement as if declaring the words of the word in faith are a very real swing of a sword that cannot be parried. So what you see in the wilderness is Jesus is going to say, it is written, it is written, it is written. He's going to be swinging a sword. And so something about the declaration in faith of the word of God has a power to it, a military power to it. So I call that declaring the facts. But here's the opposite. Here's the other side of it, doing the actions. Actually exercising its commands. When the word of God says do this, then when we do it, the doing functions as a very real instrument of war against the enemy. So that's obedience. When God says, when you're falsely accused, leap for joy. Well, guess what? If you're going to what you feel, you're never going to leap for joy when you're falsely accused. That's the last thing you feel like doing. However, if you do what the word of God says, and you actually leap. It is a military movement against the enemy camp. You are obeying. You are doing what God says. So it's not just the pronouncement of what God says, but when he asks you to do something, you do it. And those two facets of wielding the word of God are mighty. So let's do some practice. Let's declare the word of scripture, the facts. So 1 John 4, 4 says, it is written, well, I'm saying it is written. It is written that greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. So that is a fact. So what I want you to do is stand on it, and I want you to wield it. If God has said it, stand on it, and don't be bashful. So as a result, you're going to see me, I'll whip that one out a lot in prayer. And it is a very clear statement from my soul, I believe it, and as a result, I am going to issue it as a missile in battle, as a arrow from a bow, as a bullet from a gun. It is a military maneuver that comes out of a soldier and into a very real engagement of battle. Let's do another practice. So instead of uh, this one, this first one is declare the word of scripture. This is do the word of scripture, the actions. Satan, I bind you, I resist you, I pin you down to the ground in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, some of this is very challenging for us to know how to deal with because of the abuses of the issues of prayer, some of the issues of how people talk to the devil, and they talk about the devil a lot, and as a result, uh, it's like almost a study of demons becomes like this huge thing as opposed to, you know what, we really don't want to give him any more airtime than he needs. 
Okay, we need to know that he's out there. We need to know that he has a certain power, but we need to know that he is defeated. And as a result, when he is lurking, when he is moving, we need to recognize it and tag it, but not overstudy it. Our job is not to be experts and PhDs on the devil. Our job is to be an expert and a PhD on who God is, our general. We know his heart, and we know what we need to know to deal with that devil. So we have been told to do certain things, but to do them, we're like, well, but I don't want to violate anything else. And I think that's great. You want to keep the whole counsel of scripture in how you do this, which is where there's a regard and an understanding. And you'll see that in Jude, for instance, where these guys are going to mishandle the authority that they have. And they're going to, in a sense, mock the enemy kingdom, as opposed to recognizing a deference to say, but Jesus is the one that defeats you. Instead of the, the, the sheep going out there and going, hey, you guys are ugly, sick, and dirty, you know, wolves, and I don't like you. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go, in the name of my shepherd, get out of town. But there still is a very real working that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to still exercise what authority we have. So if God says to bind, to loose, to resist, to wrestle, to pull down, to throw down, to cast down, to take captive, and to stand against, then do it. So here's a starter package for our spiritual war vocabulary. So this is our starter glossary. In the name of Jesus, which is our authoritative position, binding, which is a really awkward word. I have to admit, the word binding in the way I grew up hearing it made me never want to do it. It's like, I don't want to do any of this binding stuff. That's just like weird. It's for weird people uh, doing weird things. And yet what it basically means is arresting that which is harming. Okay, so if something is coming against someone and its intent is to harm, that to bind it means to hinder it or to arrest it from doing that. And we have authority to do that. Loosing, clearing all roadblocks for God's purposes to be accomplished. Loosing, one of the best illustrations for me, it's a football illustration. Sorry to do that to all of you that don't like football. But it's like a blocker. A blocker, so say a, a tackler's coming over and the guy's running with the ball and you're a blocker, you're gonna knock that guy out of the way to free up that runner to get to the end zone. And as a result, you're going to loose or block, if you wanna say block, you're fine. I mean, I don't, I, I don't get stuck on the, the actual terminology. This is just English translations of Greek words. But that's what it means, clearing all roadblocks for God's purposes to be accomplished. Resisting, clearly setting yourself in the path of the enemy's advance and commanding him to retreat. So the enemy's making his way in and just sort of marching in with such confidence. It's like, you will go no further. And I say in the name of Jesus Christ, get out. I resist your forward movement. I stand against it. Not in my own authority, not in human power, but in authority of Christ. And the devil must leave wrestling, yanking the spiritual powers down to the ground and pinning their powers. That's actually what it means. It means to throw to the ground where it loses its offensive position. It's like a flip where you are canceling out its offensive strength, pulling down, utterly destroying and tearing apart their operation, their plans, and their schemes, casting down to drive away to prison, lock up, handcuff, to bring under the rule of the cross. Revenging, to exact, to tax the enemy for their unlawful invasion, to sue them for damages. I've done this many times in my prayers. It's like, okay, enemy, you have stolen in this situation, so I'm just going to command that you pay it back with interest. God restores what the locust has eaten. I, I love that one. Standing, being strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Do you know your position? 
If you do, you do not cower, you do not retreat. You stand in it. And the proof that you are a believer is you do not run. I remember William Grinnell, he wrote a book called Christian in Complete Armor. It's a classic. It's like about that thick, uh, just on Ephesians 6. Wow. And it's an old Puritan writer. And one of the things he said is, uh, God never made provision for armor for the back. Therefore, he must not have considered retreat an option. I've always liked that line. In other words, there's no provision for back here. Everything is offensive. God has dressed us and clothed us with everything we need for the sort of battle that we are to fight. However, he doesn't say run. He doesn't say, watch out, the enemy's got you. Flee. Take it to him. When the devil boasts that he has me beaten and that his strength is superior, I will remember that it is written. So for those of you that have notes, you can see this, but if you don't have the notes, we have them back there. I see a whole pile back there. But I'm going to just go through and show you how the word of God works when you have a very specific challenge, like when the devil boasts that he has me beaten. So if you're feeling like the devil has the upper hand and that he, his strength is superior, it's like, look at you, you're pathetic. Okay, how many times have we heard these things, right? How can we respond back? So let's do some practice here. All things are underneath the feet of my Redeemer, Ephesians 1.22. The Messiah has come and has crushed the head of the serpent and has declared it is finished, John 19.30. And if God is for me, who can stand against me, Romans 8.31. For greater is he that who is in me than he who is in this world, 1 John 4.4. 4. My spiritual weaponry is mighty to the pulling down of enemy strongholds, 2 Corinthians 10.3-4. If I submit to God, resist the devil, the devil will flee. James 4, 7. The shield of faith repels all the fiery darts of the evil one. Ephesians 6, 16. He is my refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Psalm 46, 1. For my God surrounds me with favors with a shield. Psalm 5, 12. And though a thousand may fall at my side and 10,000 at my right hand, it will not come near me. Psalm 91, 7. No weapon formed against me shall prosper, Isaiah 54, 17. I've been given power over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt me, Luke 10, 19. My enemies shall intend to harm me, but God means all things for good that he may deliver many, Genesis 50, 20. So how about this one? We'll practice on this uh, challenge. When the devil shouts of my defeat, my imminent shame. You're going down. You know, you're only thinking that you're all that, you know, as a Christian, but eventually you're going to realize that you're going to lose. I will remember that it is written, no one who hopes in him will be ashamed, Psalm 34, 22. And he has said he will never leave me or forsake me, Hebrews 13, 5. No grave trouble will overtake me, Proverbs 12, 21. I will not die but live and declare the works of the Lord, Psalm 118, 17. I will have an abundance for every good work, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly, Psalm 84, 11. He has said, I am strong and the word of God abides in me and I have overcome the wicked one. 1 John 2.14. He who spared not his own son, will he not freely give me all things? Romans 8.32. He who has begun a good work in me will bring it to completion. Philippians 1.6. How about when the devil forecasts my doom and attempts to darken my vision of the future? I will remember that it is written. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers me out of them all. Psalm 34, 19. I shall be like a stream of water whose waters fail not. Isaiah 58, 11. He knows the plans he has for me, plans to prosper and not harm. Jeremiah 29, 11. 
As I make the Lord my focus, I shall be like a tree planted by streams of water, which brings forth its fruit in season. Its leaf also does not wither. Psalm 1.3. Those who rise up against me will fall before me in judgment. Isaiah 54.17. When the devil conspires to sabotage my onward march, then I will wield the word of God against him. I will declare to him that what is... I will declare to him what is written, and I will also do what is written for me to do. Listen to this list. This is great. I will remember 2 Timothy 2.8. I will give thanks, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. I will sing, Psalm 96.2. I will praise, Psalm 113.1. I will worship, Psalm 96.9. I will obey, Hebrews 5.9. I will war, 2 Corinthians 10.3. I will stand firm, 1 Corinthians 16.13. I will quit myself like a man, 1 Corinthians 16.13. I will bind that which is hindering, Matthew 16.19 and 18.18. I will loose that which is hindered, Matthew 16.19 and 18.18. I will pull down, 2 Corinthians 10.4. I will take captive, 2 Corinthians 10.5. I will put on, on, Ephesians 6.11, Colossians 3.10-12. I will wrestle with the spiritual powers, Ephesians 6.12. I will stand, Ephesians 6.13-14. I will pray, Ephesians 6.18. And I will certainly overcome, 1 John 4.4. Oh, this is good stuff, guys. How do you engage the spiritual enemy and win? If you want to win this, you have to do it God's way. If you try and take on the enemy your way, you will lose. But if you take on the enemy God's way, you can't help but win. So you need to implement the strategy of God. And here it is. I don't know if you've ever seen this scripture before, but hopefully it will dance on the page for you. And you'll see it afresh in your soul. And you'll recognize that the great strategy of heaven isn't that you dig down deep and overcome It's that you let go of your life and let him do the grand work of salvation for you. Not just in the big picture salvation like save you from hell. That's where we all seem to go with that. But how about saving you from the temptation that's coming against you today? How about saving you from the wrong response to those words spoken against you? How about the false accusation to actually give you the ability to not slouch into selfishness and self-pity and suck your thumb, but to rise up with triumph? That is supernatural. It is not something you're going to find in you. It's something you find in Christ. So be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Father, as we start a new semester, may we behold you, your majesty, your power, and your might. And may we freshly declare in our own souls that it is not of us. It is all of you. That victory is found in you. Triumph is found in you. Overcoming is found in you. Liberty and freedom is found in you. Love is found in you. Faith is found in you. Lord Jesus, all of this muscle of the kingdom of heaven is found in you and in the power of your might. Lord, acquaint us with this. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. To take this specific message deeper through our daily Thunder discussions, visit ellerslie.com, where you can also explore our sermon library or learn more about joining us in person at the Church at Ellerslie here in Windsor, Colorado. Thanks for listening.